Tone Deaf is the journey of a musical theater nerd, bringing musicals into the life of their musically challenged spouse. The reactions to the musicals are real and mostly unedited. This show is rated explicit for mature content and strong language. Now sit back, relax, and have a laugh. You're listening to Tone Deaf. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. So we hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving here in the U.S., that you had a good week elsewhere. Um, We are doing an unfortunately seasonal episode today because Utah is currently blanketed in like what do you think it's like three inches of white bullshit uh five inches of father's winter father winter's angry jizz (laughs) jesus (laughs) right out of the gate (laughs) right out of the gate well at thanksgiving my uh my father told me that my grandma was going to start listening to our podcast hi grandma hi hi grandma hi grandma warren I hope you enjoyed that that joke. There's lots more where that came from. You I'm can turn so, off now if you want. I'm so, so sorry. I won't fault you, Grandma. I'll still love you. We love you so much. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> the whole state took a big old facial from Old Man Winter. <laughs> it was bad yesterday. <laughs> oh, man. It was... It was no bueno being out in the state yesterday. Oh my god. And it looks like Old Man Winter's going to keep doing that for the rest of the season, so... You know, he could at least take us out to dinner first. I know, right? Like, instead, we had to have our dinner and then get the facial from Old Man Winter. <laughs> god damn. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, this changes my opening jokes. <laughs> So today we're doing White Christmas, which I think I now know what you think of when you think of White Christmas. <laughs> uh, well, to be fair, I just kind of winged it. That's not what I normally think. I normally think, God, I wish I had a flamethrower, but... Yeah. I mean, you know, a White Christmas can be nice if you like snow, but... It's great if you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's beautiful to... <laughs> Look out the window and see this majestic white winter wonderland and be like, ha, ah, I don't have to go anywhere. Yep, but for the rest of us, we have to go places. So, obviously most people would either think of the carol or the whole, oh, I want it to be snowy and cold on a Christmas. Or you might be thinking of the movie slash musical White Christmas by Irving Berlin. I did not know that was a thing until you said that we were doing it. Yep. Well, uh, one of our listeners and friends of the show, Reagan, has been in White Christmas before, and we'll talk a little bit about the stage version, but most of this episode's going to be about the movie. See, the only thing I knew of White Christmas was the the classic Christmas song. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Like, that's the only thing I've really known. Yeah. So, I mean, I did not know that there was 
a show, let alone a movie, about it. Yeah, so um, what we're going to do, I'm going to take you down a little bit of a dive about the song first before we go into the movie so that you have the context of the song. Because this is kind of a groundbreaking Christmas song. Is the context that they were dreaming of a white Christmas because they wanted to get snowed in so they didn't have to go to their in-laws? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a logical train of thought, in my opinion. No, no. Um, I just want to wake up and get drunk on Christmas. I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> no, so actually, it starts with composer Irving Berlin. In 1940, uh, and we'll be covering Berlin a lot. Uh, I have a super stupid question to ask you. Yes. Do you know if Berlin is his real last name? Yes, I believe it was. Uh, okay. Irving Berlin is a Jewish composer from the 30s and 40s. And in 1940, Berlin's writing the song White Christmas, and he wrote it in one of two hotels. There's a little bit of a back and forth between which hotel he wrote this in. It was either in the La Quinta Hotel in L.A. La Quinta. Or in the Arizona Biltmore. Both of them are like, he wrote it in our hotel. <laughs> and when we get to this, you'll see why they're arguing over who was the hotel he wrote it in. Um, regardless, he wrote the song, most likely in 1940, didn't sleep while he was writing it. <laughs> And told his secretary, grab your pen and take down this song. I just wrote the best song I've ever written. Heck, I just wrote the best song that anybody's ever written. Is that the song that we all know, though? Yes. Okay, he's tugging his... He's, he's, he's giving himself a little bit of a congratulatory stroke on that one. I well, mean, greatest song ever. Well, we're going to get into it in a minute, but a song like White Christmas was not something that would have existed at this time. Christmas music was not secular. <gasps> I want to go there. Right? Well, I mean, you're there already because, yes, you have your Christmas classics of Silent Night and No Come O Come Emmanuel, but a lot of Christmas music nowadays is secular Christmas music because it focuses on something other than religion. Did you just say there was a song called Come On Emmanuel? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. <laughs> oh, come, oh, come, oh, Emmanuel. 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 God damn it. Hey! <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> I don't know why you have to have Emmanuel on. Never mind. Oh, God. I don't want to get into the meaning of that song. We'll do that on a tangent episode. <laughs> So you mean any episode? <laughs> any episode. Um, any episode will do. <laughs> so this song was first performed in public on Christmas Day of 1941. I want you to keep that date in mind. Uh, by Bing Crosby on the Kraft Music Hall show. He then recorded it in 18 minutes with the Scott Trotter Orchestra and the Ken Darby Singers on May 29th, 1942 to be released with the six-disc album for the film Holiday Inn, which we'll cover next year. Okay. And this, so the reason why it's six discs for this album is because... This is a lot of sh fucking music. Well, not really. Oh. So 
these were all 78 RPM albums, and this is before the LP era. And so at this time, album sides were about three and a half minutes long. Oh, So that's why. So you would have, so you had six discs, so 12 songs, basically. Um, And we're not going to go on a tangent with this. Okay. (laughs) Because otherwise, I, I... I did a little bit of a deep dive and then went, oh, God, no, no, no. Okay, back. Bing Crosby, Irving Berlin, White Christmas. Okay, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> so, Snap out of it, Kay. Yep. So Crosby didn't think that White Christmas was the best song or even a great song. He said, I don't think we have any problems with that one, Irving. And that was all he said about it. Uh, But this was actually a big deal, like I said, because this is a secular Christmas song written by a Jewish man at a time when secular Christmas songs weren't a thing commercially. Okay. And to be fair... To be fair. (laughs) To be fair, it didn't chart right away, but in October of 1942, it topped the Your Hit Parade chart and beat anyone who got close with a sack of oranges (laughs) until some point in 1943 when it got bored. (laughs) It uh, also showed that a secular Christmas song could be commercially viable, and it's a roundabout way of saying, thanks a lot, Irving Berlin, for making Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer possible. Oh, fuck him just for that. (laughs) Well, he also may... Well, you don't like All I Want for Christmas. See, I'm I'm not not a fan. I will just... This is going to make a lot of people not like me if they already don't like me. I'm not a huge fan of Christmas songs in general, partly because I don't like the over-commercialization of the spirit of the holiday, and two, most of them are goddamn earworms. Yeah. And you've you've seen me, like, for whatever reason, I'll just start humming a Christmas song in, like, fucking July. It's true. And I'm just like, why is this happening to me? Oh, it's the curse that the witch put upon me. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, uh, Irving Berlin is also responsible for Whamageddon existing. I'll... Okay, Okay, I know you talk about this every year, and all I know is it's like a specific Christmas song that if it's, you hear, it's then it's Last like... Christmas by Wham. If you hear it, you lose. <laughs> Same thing with like Little Drummer Boy or something? Yeah, the Limmer- Little Drummer Boy challenge, which I'm a drummer, so I automatically lose it anytime someone goes, hey, we want you to sing or drum for our church, and I'm like, fuck, I know exactly which song I'm Jesus out this Christ, year. Jesus Christ, I don't want to drum in church. <laughs> I mean, I I don't mind drumming in church, and I actually like Little Drummer Boy, but I'd like to be able to win that challenge one year. Um, <laughs> anyway, Little Drummer Boy is not possible from Irving Berlin because that is a religious Christmas song, because it's about Jesus, whereas songs like White Christmas are about more the oh, I'm going to be with my family for Christmas, or I'm going to be with my loved ones for Christmas, or I want snow on Christmas, or I want... All I want for Christmas is you. Exactly. Um, So this was also a really big deal for servicemen in World War II. Okay. Remember when the song first was performed? December 25th, 1941. What happened a few weeks before? Pearl Harbor? Yes. So this became the song that gave all these people these sentiments of, like, longing for home, longing for the routines of Christmas back home. Uh, it It's slightly melancholic but 
not like it, it it feels a little bit like a melancholic song but not in the same way as I'll be home for Christmas which is another one that was uh important at this time but this became one of the most popular songs for soldiers fighting in World War II okay okay I, I, okay I'll I'll okay and uh Crosby actually performed at one of the USO shows, I think it was right before Battle of the Bulge, if I remember right. And he remembered breaking down in tears because he knew that most of these men were going to die. And they did, because it was a lot of people lost. And uh, that was one of the things that I found out researching this song. Um this was not only the top of the Billboard charts for 11 weeks, but this was also Crosby's first time charting in a black-oriented chart. Really? He charted at the top of the Harlem Hit Parade for three weeks. As I alluded to earlier, though, White Christmas, the movie, is not the first appearance of White Christmas, the song, when it comes to a movie or a musical. This actually first showed up in Holiday Inn. Like I said, we're going to cover that show later. Probably next year. Um, fun fact, this is the most recorded Christmas song. To date, there are 500 recordings. I would believe it because I have heard... I've heard at least a handful of different people sing it. Mm -hmm. And I have not heard that with... A bunch of other Christmas songs, so... Yeah, this is this is the most recorded, and the version that you're more familiar with is the 1947 re-recording of it. The 1942 master was destroyed because vinyl albums being played and distributed over and over and over and over again tends to destroy the album. Um, so I'm going to close this segment about the song itself with a quote from Crosby, because, again, he didn't think that the success of the song was due to him. He said, a jackdaw with a cleft pellet could sing it successfully. <laughs> so he's just like, the song was stupidly easy. Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's not a hard song. Like, no. Kids, little kids sing this at well, Christmas pageants. It's, it, and that's the thing is, it's not necessarily the lyrics. It's just the way that it's sung. It's yeah. Just, you know, it's it's the melodically it. easy. And... But that's why it's yeah. so successful. It's so melodically easy. I can sing it. I mean, mm, not, not, not as well as a professional singer, but mm. I can sing it. Yeah, it's a very easy song. So we'll move on to the movie. White Christmas, the movie, was released in 1954. It was directed by Michael Curtis and was written by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. Yes? Norman Panama. I'm just... Okay. It's the most 50s slash 40s name. Um, fun story about this later, because originally it only had one writer, Norman Krasna. Uh, Berlin had wanted the movie to be done about this song as early as 1948, and Paramount paid $2 million to have it made. They only asked for 30%, which pretty good for movies at this time in the studio era. Originally, it was to be a reunion for Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, who had previously worked together in Paramount's Holiday Inn and Blue Skies together, uh, both also Berlin features. But then, 
Fred Astaire read the script and asked to be released from his contract. Oh! <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> that doesn't bode well. So then, Crosby uh, stayed on, but then his wife, Dixie Lee, died. So Crosby oh. turned down the role to spend time with his kids, but they were like, no, we want you to still do this movie, so take your time. So January of 1953, he returned to production alongside with Tone Deaf alumni all the way back from episode three, Donald O'Connor. Remind me which one he was. Was he, he so he, that was, uh, oh shit, episode three. I was singing in the rain. Yes. Donald O'Connor. Was he the main guy, the main actor in that Donald. He was the friend. Okay, he was the the really comedic. Yeah, he was the comedic role. And then he got sick and had to drop out, so the role went to Danny Kay. And um, no relation. No relation. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kay is my last name. Um, so with these being kind of star-driven movies, they had to make changes because originally Kay's role was written for someone else. So Mel Frank and Norman Panama were brought in, and they took a look at the script and were like, Jesus, we need to fix this. Uh With uh, Frank saying, writing that movie was the worst experience of my life. (laughs) Norman Krasno was a talented man, but man, it was the lousiest story I ever heard. It needed a brand new story, one that made sense. Oh, man. Okay. So... This is the what we're going to be seeing is after the rewrites. Okay, so it's it's not the steaming pile. It's, it's not the, revised. the steaming pile. It's the revised revised pile. And Minus the steam. Uh, we'll get to it later, but uh, if it hadn't have been for this, it wouldn't have had the cultural impact it did. <laughs> so, Rosemary Clooney, who is aunt of Ulysses Everett McGill himself, George Clooney. <laughs> And uh, Vera Ellen. Is that a No Brother Where Art Thou reference? Yes, it was. <laughs> I love you. I love you. And uh, Vera Ellen, who you haven't seen before, uh, play the love interest for Crosby and Danny Kay. Uh, Bing was also 51 when filming this. Rosemary Clooney was 26. They were love interests for this. Oh, <sighs> old enough to be your dad yeah yeah and uh rosemary also plays vera ellen's oldest sister vera is 33 again rosemary is 26 because hollywood is fucked up (laughs) all righty then so the foss was an uncredited choreographer (laughs) for this and eagle-eyed viewers may notice that uh alfalfa makes an appearance in this from the original, little from the rascals. little, uh, yeah, the original little rascals, which I never saw any. I only I, saw the remake. I watched those a lot. Um, I like that you called Fosse the Foss. I know it's it's bled into my vernacular now. Yes, I am corrupting her. <laughs> so uh, he, a picture of Carl Schweitzer who played Alfalfa is a uh, pic is used for Vera's brother. Um, this was also the first film shot in VistaVision, which was a widescreen format that's now mostly used for special effects, most notably the original Star Wars. Oh. 
this is also the highest grossing musical of all time, like movie musical. It what? grossed, yes, it grossed 12 million at the time. Nowadays, that is $111,955,390. So it had a budget of $2 million. Yes. And it grossed $12 million. Yes. And, I mean, it, it made ridiculous money. And it was re-released re in theaters in 1961. This is one of the most popular Christmas movies out there. Oh, wow. Okay. That's... Setting it on a pedestal for me to Spartan kick? Please don't put this... It, like I said, it's the most popular. That doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> this is outdated! <clears throat> oh, God, you have no idea. Like, not just the romantic subplots in this, but there's a scene that is going to legit send you into, like, a rage spiral. <sighs> I am so sorry in advance, but, like... History! You, yeah, history of musical theater is often drenched in sexism and racism, so... <laughs> yeah! Um, there is a stage version that we'll cover someday, and it removes uh, a lot of stuff that's not great. Good. For the time. <laughs> Excellent. <Yeah. laughs> so there's that. Um, yeah, Irving Berlin was a brilliant composer... And a lot of his stuff had a lot of commercial success. Uh, you'll recognize a lot of his songs once we start. Sounds like he had commercial and cultural success if it's yes. had that kind of staying power for yes. so many decades. He, he, is, he is one of the greats with regards to Tin Pan Alley type composing. And we'll cover that. Too. You, you saw the question flash I of did. blood across I, my I face. Saw of, What's Tin Pan Alley? <laughs> I watched it and I went, oh, that's right. I use that term a lot and I never explain it. <laughs> you use it a lot? Because I don't recall you. Yeah, I'll okay. use it in the car sometimes talking about oh. music. And when I go on my history of rock and roll tangents, then I <laughs> sometimes will go there. <laughs> I miss that class. That was a fun class. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, do you have any questions before we go watch Bing Crosby with a much younger woman? I... That is the I, saddest uh, face. I, I, I think we... I think I just need to rip this band-aid off. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's not a bad movie. I... Mm, I'm conflicted about it. I like the music. <laughs> I like the music in this movie. I The last time that I saw it, I was really little. So, and even when I was really little, I was kind of like, what's this hmm. shit? Hmm. Music's nice, but hmm. And then I found out about Bing Crosby and stuff, and I was like, hmm. And then I found out about, uh, blackface and went hmm. so yeah yeah like that escalations of hmm yep the many hmms of k yep so many hmms so hmms and ha shall we watch the uh only christmas movie that we'll be covering for this december and i guess all right 
So we'll take a brief intermission, go uh, watch some White Christmas, then pour you a cup of hot cocoa, and you can probably pour some drink into it. Because <laughs> you may need it. I'm we'll just see. My, I'm just sitting here like going, if you know that there's a scene that's going to send me off, I'm like, oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Let's go. Hi folks, we wanted to take a quick moment to thank our Patreon sponsors. Thank you to our stage crew sponsors, Jasmine Wu and Reagan, and our producer circle sponsor, Bianucci. Thank you so much for your continued support of our show. We truly appreciate it. Now let's hear from our friends, Cortland and Brandon, at Up All Night and Alone in the Dark podcast. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Up All Night and Are You Afraid of the Dark podcast. We're your hosts. My name's Cortland. And I'm Brandon. And in our podcast, we take apart each episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, scene by scene, and discuss it in detail. This show is prime early 90s Canadian acting at its best, or in some cases worst. We're here to laugh our way through seven seasons and 91 episodes. So whether you're a fan of the show, Dink, no mister, accent on the dough. Won't you come play with me? Hey, we're just having a goof. Or experiencing it for the first time. We know there's nothing better than staying up all night with a scary story. And now, the lights are going down and the music is starting back up. So let's hop into the second act of the show. Okay, babes. So, uh, what did you think of this one? I'm dreaming of a better show. <laughs> Just like some ones we've seen before. <laughs> this show wasn't horrible, but not great. <laughs> It's kind of meh to me as of late. <laughs> it, was, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was okay. It was except for one part which we'll talk about later. I mean it was mm-hmm. serviceable. I mean I I think probably for me personally I don't I don't think it probably has aged all that well to an extent. Oh hell no. <laughs> there is one super awesome scene in the whole show oh, yeah. that literally gave me chills. And made me Every, cry. Yeah, made Kay cry because of the Pact of the Witch. Everything that I feel goes to her. So mm-hmm. uh, it was okay. Like, that was the thing is like, um, it was so funny because there were so many 
dancing numbers in it where mm. they weren't necessarily singing. Yeah. And the dancing numbers, I was like, God damn, that you know that woman can dance. Like, yeah. they're, they're great scenes um, just to watch. No Broadway acid trips. Yeah. Which, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the songs were fine mm-hmm. overall. Like, I just... Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would say for me, this show probably was hovering somewhere in the bottom bottom part of the middle. Okay. Um. Just because it was just, eh, it's just, eh, not a problem. Okay. It's not. I mean, it's it's one of those shows where there is an audience for it. Dear God, there's an audience for it. That audience just isn't us. You know what's funny about it is I thought that the story mm-hmm. was actually pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Um, the story was pretty decent, and I actually thought that the story was better than the musical parts overall. Yeah. You know, just yeah. overall. I mean, they had some funny song stuff that I thought was... It was actually was kind of reminiscent to me of uh, Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. some of the way that they played some of it. Um, but overall, it was just, just meh. For me, with this and with... I, I like the songs when they stand alone, but then as soon as you drop them into the story, it's like, he just put the song in to make it work. Mm-hmm. He just dropped the song you, in because he's Rogers like... and Hammerstein thing. Yeah. It's kind of like, where can this go? I'll just push it over here mm-hmm. and... People will think that it was artistic vision. Yeah. Yeah. So the show takes place Christmas Eve, 1944. Two of Santa's little helpers are performing for the troops in Europe, and General Jerkface is not happy that the troops are enjoying some Christmas cheer before being shipped out to fight. General Good Guy orders the driver to take the shortcut, in quotes, to (laughs) command. Spoiler! It's not a shortcut. Uh... It's not a shortcut. General Good Guy wants to give his troops some downtime before their white Christmas becomes a red one. Oh. Well, yeah. yeah. But, uh, because, like, in that scene, it's like the, a changing of the guards. Like, this mm-hmm. one general's, I don't know if he's getting reassigned or if he's going back home or what, but he's getting replaced by a different general. Yeah. And he, this new general is, there's no Christmas in the army. Yeah. And he's like, take me to command, sergeant. And the general is like, oh, be sure to take the shortcut. The guy looks at him, he's like, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And he starts driving away and he takes a right. And the guy that's with the good general is like, that's that's not the shortcut, sir. He's like, but General Jerkface doesn't know that. Yeah. And he won't know it for about an hour and a half. <laughs> and I like the line that he made. He's like, uh, oh, that sergeant's going to be a private in the morning. He's like, won't he be the lucky one? Yeah. So... General Good Guy interrupts the festivities to tell the soldiers that General Jerkface is tough and will not let them forget that he's tough. In fact, he's so tough his boots wear him for comfort. He's so tough he eats stones and spits cement. He's so tough. You like that? The performing soldiers, along with our hero, Captain Wallace, and uh, General Good Guy... Uh, sorry. The performing soldiers, along with our hero, Captain Wallace, send General Good Guy off with a song, and he marches out and then drives off. As General Good Guy drives off, the enemy attacks, bombarding the relaxing soldiers who scramble and are routed. 
Captain Wallace is saved from the rubble of a falling building by Private First Class Davis. Davis is like, oh, tis but a scratch. His arm is a little a little injured from pulling Wallace out of the debris of the falling building. Mm -hmm. uh, but the scene changes to the first aid tent, where Davis is recovering from his flesh wound, and Wallace is thanking him for saving his life. Wallace is like, if there's anything I can do for you. And Davis is like, well, <laughs> since you said that, can I sing with you? Wallace is not receptive of the initial, uh, is not receptive initially, because he works alone. But Davis gives Wallace the, I guess, I mean, I did save your life, but I wouldn't want you to do anything you don't want to do. Ow, 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 ooh, my poor arm, ow, 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 ow. <laughs> and that is a recurring theme at nauseum through the entire course of the movie, every time Wallace does not want to do something that Davis wants him to do, he just grabs his arm. He's like, oh, my arm. He, like, a decade later. Danny Kaye is so great in that, too. A decade oh my later, gosh. <laughs> when he's trying to get Wallace to do something, he's like, my arm, oh, that injury I got from saving your life. He's like, I wish the building would have fallen on me. <laughs> Wallace caves and decides that he'll perform with like Davis. Building. <laughs> I love you. That's great. Love you. <laughs> I'm sorry, that hurt. No, oh. I'm just I'm cringing at my own joke. I, I liked it. <laughs> I smacked Kay on the leg, and I thought I hurt her. Wrong leg for it to hurt. <laughs> Wallace caves and decides he'll perform with Davis. We cut to Victory Day and the end of the war. Who knew the duo had the magical power to end such a conflict? Because it just literally cuts from them in the first aid tent, like, okay, I'll sing with you. We'll do, you know, we'll we'll sing together to, boom, victory day, the end of the war. Do you really want to see what they would have gone through during the whole war, no, though? No, okay. that's fair. I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm just being me. After the war, Wallace goes back to entertaining, and his sidekick Davis is along for the ride. The two are a big success and are topping the charts. But success with a price. The price being that Wallace is a workaholic and Davis keeps trying to hook Wallace up with ladies so that he can get married and have nine children so that Davis can have some time to himself. <laughs> Fate knocks at the door and it appears that an old army buddy of theirs has a couple of sisters who are entertainers and just so happen to be performing in the same city as Wallace and Davis. Army buddy Benny Freckleface asked for W&D to see if his sister's performance to see his sister's performance and give them some showbiz advice. The two decide to go to the show. Wallace and Davis show up to the club and tell the owner to let the ladies know that they're here. The owner does, and it turns out that one of the sisters, Judy, is a little devious and is actually the one who wrote the letter, posing as Benny Freckleface. The <laughs> sisters go out and perform with their blue dresses and big-ass fans, Wallace is immediately captivated by Betty's blue eyes and Davis with Judy's brown eyes. <laughs> and uh, I actually thought their dance was pretty What's kind of funny is uh, I saw their fans and I was kind of like, I kind of want one of those. <laughs> I do too. Oh my <laughs> these, gosh. These big ass like full body fans and the way that they're playing with them. I'm like, if I had one of those, I would just torture Kay with it all the time. Like I'd sneak up behind you and just like tickle you with it because I'm childish and immature and uh and then i would just be like this is one step closer to wings yeah you, you would have two of them be like i'm a bird and i'd be like don't try and fly Kay. i'm a bird i'm not gonna try to fly i know i have or i know i have uh solid bones you would you run around like an ostrich i can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that i would run around kicking people in the chest 
<laughs> this is cake. <laughs> After the show, the sisters sit down to dinner with the fellas and sparks start to fly. Judy asks for more advice with their act, and Wallace is like, nope, just keep doing what you're doing. Judy is bummed, considering that she forged her brother's identity to get some free showbiz advice for her and her sister. Davis snags Judy for a dance and leaves Wallace and Betty to talk. Betty comes clean and is like, my sister lied to you to bring you here. Wallace is like, meh, that's fine. I'm in show business. I'm used to people lying to me to get something. Everyone has an angle. Mm -hmm. And it's that scene is actually kind of funny because he takes it surprisingly well. Yeah. He was just like, no, nah, your sister... Your sister played the the percentages, and she was right. Like he's like he had no, he was like I am totally fine with the fact that we were lied to and manipulated because in show business everyone lies and manipulates mm -hmm. and and that uh kind of comes back to bite him a little bit later. Yeah, it kinda, yeah, it definitely <laughs> does. Uh, Betty Buzzkill spoils. Ju oh, I think I skipped the thing. Okay, so I did <laughs> skip a thing. So oh no 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 I didn't because I did say that Davis snags Judy for a dance. Betty Buzzkill spoils Judy and Davis's dance with the club manager, who rushes in like, The sheriff is here with a warrant for your arrest! Turns out some lying landlord is trying to extort the sisters for damage done to his rug. Davis gets the idea to sneak the sisters out, giving them their train tickets, and, and uh, they go on stage in the ladies' place to try and buy them some time while they get away. Wallace agrees reluctantly. And then Kay was great because she was saying that this part was ad-libbed, yep. that they were just having fun on set, probably in between scenes, mm -hmm. and they decided to keep it in because it was just funny. Yeah. And it is kind of funny, too, because watching Wallace and Davis be in the dresses... Well, wait, they were they're not in the they're dresses. They're not in the dresses. They're wearing, like, the head things. They've got some makeup on, and they have the big-ass fans. Mm -hmm. Um and they're doing the girl's song and dance number, and they're playing a record of the girl singing, and they're mm -hmm. just ad not ad libbing, lip syncing. Uh, lip syncing. Thank you um, to the girl's music. And it's funny because it's not as polished as mm -hmm. other scenes, which makes sense that it was completely ad libbed, and they were just playing around because you were like, "This is the only take they have." Of yes, that. and it, I, you can see it. Like, and it, it is. It's one thing that is kind of funny about that scene, though, is it, it does seem like a very genuine moment mm -hmm. which makes sense considering that it wasn't part of the original script yeah the two put on their fan dance to the chagrin of the audience the two rush off stage pursued by the sheriff and rush to make their train the train ticket taker man is like tickets please but shock davis doesn't have the tickets because he gave them away to the two blondes the train ticket taker man is like, well, you can buy some tickets and sit in the club car all night. Better than nothing. Wallace buys two brand new tickets for New York, even though Davis insists on Vermont, because that's where the two sisters are going. But Wallace doesn't know that yet. <laughs> Wallace starts laying into Davis upon realizing that Davis gave their tickets away to the two blondes with big eyes. Wallace is like, I'm going to throw those two out of my room because I want my nice, soft, blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> the girls come in, thank you, come into the club car, thanking them so much for their help getting away from the sheriff and the terrible lying landlord. Wallace abandons his plans to throw the girls out and instead invites them to drinks and a sandwich. And of course, the serving guy in the club car is a black guy. 
Yep, the the only uh, black folks that you see in this movie are in serving roles. But to the movie's credit, everyone is very polite to the serving man. Yes. That is what yes, I will say. Yes, that's the good, that's and, the only... And they have no speaking lines either. Yeah. No black person has a speaking line in Yeah. This. They are just yeah. there to be serving white people. At and this least came out, it's not Holiday Inn. Oh, uh, which I'm glad we're doing that next year. Mm -hmm. um, You'll have all the context when we do it for next year. Is 19... So, uh, this was released 1955, right? 54. 54. Okay. Because mm -hmm. the, the show... Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because it uh, starts in 54... Or 44. And then later on, they're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the thing. Yes. Okay. The boy-girl, boy-girl group sit and talk about where they're going. The girls have a gig at a ski lodge in Vermont. And the guys decide to abandon New York and accompany them up to Vermont. They have a song and dance number about snow and skiing and other winter wonderland bullshit activities. I, yeah, not my <laughs> thing, not my pig, not my farm. I don't care. <laughs> the double duo arrive in Vermont, but to no snow. Inquiring with the local, uh, inquire, uh, inquiring with a local reveals that they have not had snow in weeks. They, the merry band of... I hate when I confuse myself with my own typing. The merry band of probably will get married later people mosey on down <laughs> to the ski lodge where the ladies are informed that their show will be canceled due to a lack of customers. As Wallace is preparing to grab their bags and pack them back up in the cab, who should walk in carrying a bundle of firewood but General Good Guy from the opening act. General Good Guy is the owner of this establishment and is down on his luck and tells the ladies that they don't need to leave, he'll pay them in full, even if the crowd is minimal, because they have a contract, and he is an honorable man. He He's actually my favorite character he's in this whole show. He's my favorite, too. I, I really it, like the general, and I really like the non-bitchy resting face sister. Judy. Uh, Judy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like those two the most. Those two are great, and the, the general is the reason why I cried later. Yep, yep. And we'll talk about it. Yep. The girls perform to an audience of a handful. They sit down with Wallace and Davis afterwards and lament about how they feel like they're stealing money for not performing for more people. Wallace and Davis hatch a devious plan to help draw a crowd by having the entire by having their entire show move from New York to Vermont to draw in people. They kind of talk about it as like, well, you know, we've closed down our show for winter, but we still have to do rehearsals and workshop new material, mm -hmm. and this is just such a great place to do it. And yeah. We'll, and I think part of, part of it, it, like, um, it is actually a good idea, because it's like people staying up there, they're going to have to, they're basically paying the general for room and board, you know, yeah. so since he's down on his luck, and it, it was very nice of them to do yeah, that. Yeah, it still is helping out the general. Yeah, it still is helping out the general, and it, it was just a very nice thing for them to do for an old uh, commander. Mm-hmm. During the course of the rehearsals at the ski resort, uh, we get the part of the show Kay warned me about, uh, the minstrel show. Mm -hmm. The only thing about this scene I like is that Judy has a very nice, bedazzled, legless uh, wedding dress mm -hmm. with ruby gloves. And uh, they have some tambourines with... Oh, and I, I don't like this part, though. They have tambourines with creepy faces on them mm -hmm. because my nightmares didn't know that they needed those. Yep. Thanks, movie. 
This minstrel show part was not as bad as I was worried it would be. No blackface or anything like that. No, just, that's Holiday Inn. Just singing about missing the good old days of having minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. So, fuck that whole scene, except for Judy in the really uh, nice dress. Yeah, I, uh, I was torn between wanting her in that dress and wanting to wear that dress, such as the bi experience. Oh, I will. You can wear that dress for me. I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> the, what's funny about Judy's character is uh, Kay was saying that all her singing is dubbed in because mm -hmm. she is not a singer. She is a dancer. But they make full effect of that yes. because she has incredibly nice legs and just about every mm -hmm. time, just about every time she is on stage dancing, she is in a legless outfit mm -hmm. to show off her muscular dancer's legs. Yep. And she is, I will say, she is a very, very, very incredible dancer. There's a moment later dance-wise, and I don't know if you'll cover it, that was the tap dancing. I, I little you bit. You do? A awesome. little bit. Uh, probably, you can elaborate on it if you would like. Once we get to it, I will, because holy crap. Crap. <laughs> Anyways, the song is over and the gang is retiring for the night, and Judy convinces her sister to go and get something to eat, to uh, drain blood from the brain so that she can sleep. The ruse works, and it turns out it was an elaborate trap constructed by Davis and Betty to get Wallace and Judy to have a romantic moment by I mean, the fire. Davis and Judy to have Bob. Dave. Oh, yep, constructed by Davis and Judy to get Wallace and Betty. Mm -hmm. to have a romantic moment by the fire. Thank you, Kay. <laughs> it works after it works uh, after we're subjected to Wallace's theory, and I use that term lightly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, his theory is that depending on what you eat, you'll have different dreams. He basically is like, this sandwich makes me think of a tall blonde, and this sandwich makes me think of a sexy brunette, yada yada. But Judy seems to have left her bullshit detector back in her room because she falls for it. And is even like, I think you're such, I think you're so kind and it's such a genuine person for hauling your minstrel show up here to try and help bring business to the general's failing ski lodge. Wallace Max on Judy, right, oh sorry, Wallace Max on Betty, right as the general comes in. He gives them a wink and a smile and goes into the kitchen to satisfy his late night sweet tooth. Wallace is like, Betty, you haven't eaten anything yet. And she's like, I know exactly what I'll be dreaming about. And the two smooch again. Mm -hmm. uh, the general has a really funny line, though, when he comes in. Because he comes in right as uh, Wallace and Betty are kissing. And he's like, oh, well, I'm terribly sorry. He's like, I just had a sweet tooth and I came in here to, to get something. And he's like, I see you're already you know, having your sweet tooth kind of thing. Yeah. Like, just kind of, uh, I, I thought that, that he's, he's such a lovable he grandpa. Is. And I love his character because he's such a gruff, curmudgeonly general type, but he's got a center of gooey warm, mm -hmm. gooey warmness, you know? Yeah. And I just like him. We cut to the next day as Wallace is pulling up in a Jeep after doing a mail run. He sits down and talks with the general, who tells him he appreciates what he's trying to do up here, but his innkeeper days are numbered, because he wants to go back to the army, and he's expecting a letter from Washington any day now. Wallace is like, well shit, I picked up the mail, and you do have a letter from Washington. The general is like, I forgot my glasses, would you read it to me? Mm -hmm. Wallace reads the general his letter, but it's not what he was hoping for. Rather than an invitation to come back to duty, it's a polite refusal letter. The general takes the rejection well, but we can tell 
he's hurting underneath. Mm-hmm. Poor General, I just want to give the old grandpa a hug. Yeah. Um, it's it's sad, because like, he talks about, oh, I'm, I want to go back to active duty, and I'm holding out for a command position. I would like to go overseas, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. He wants to, very much wants to relive his glory days type of thing. Yeah. Um, but the letter he gets back, it sounds like it's someone that he knew when he was in the service. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you old dog. Ah, da, da. I'm holding out for a couple more years and then I can live the comfy life like you, Tom, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and Wallace only gets partway through the letter before the general tells him no. And he's like, he's like, he's, he's politely telling me that they don't have a place for me. And he very, he really kind of shakes it off um and he's like oh, i'm gonna go learn how to play horseshoes kind yeah because wallace makes the comment about oh you should learn to play horseshoes he's like ah that's for retired well i can't remember what he basically says but it's like oh it's for people with nothing better to do or yeah. something like that yeah and then after he realizes he's got nothing better to do he goes to learn how to play horseshoes mm-hmm. wallace decides to reach out to a tv producer in new york for Reasons I'm sure will be disclosed later. If I had to guess, he wants to try and get the ski ski lodge even more publicity. Turns out I was right. Uh, We're treated (laughs) to a Foss dance number, which is entertaining, with Judy showing off those legs again. She did this crazy tap number that Kay had to explain to me. Apparently, really good dancers can distort space and time. (laughs) Because with this... That's not quite it. So... Well, uh, let, let me let me elaborate on my insanity, and we'll see if it makes any any uh, more sense. So, she's doing like this tap number, and I thought her foot was just holding still, and I'm like, "Where's the tapping comes from? Coming from?" Kay explained to me that it's a type of tap where you're moving your just your foot really, really fast, mm-hmm. and it's just tap, 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 and you move it so fast that it doesn't really look that much like it's moving because. Your foot's not really that high off the ground anyway. So she's like vibrating her leg mm-hmm. and tapping. Mm-hmm. So for me, it distorts space and time because it was relative. I did not see her leg moving, but I heard the tapping noise. For me, my shins still hurt. <laughs> I can't wait till we get to some more tap heavy shows for you to watch because there are some crazy talented tap dancers nope. out there and she's one of them. But... Tap is really cool. Anytime yeah. I see you know, in shows when they do, like, tap numbers, I'm always blown away. Like, mm-hmm. just mesmerized by how talented and skilled they are. Mm-hmm. And I just look at it and go, wow, I am so uncoordinated. If I was to try and do that, I would, like, break my ankle. Oh, if I could get my knees and ankles stable again, that would be fun to <laughs> relearn, because it's so fun. <laughs> it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. It sound, it's nice to listen to, too. Yeah. Uh, we are... Oh, that's the Foss scene. Ha ha ha. Which the Foss was uncredited. Really? For his choreography. Because he didn't contribute all of the choreography, but he contributed some. It was before he got really big, so... Gotcha. So he mm-hmm. was kind of not... Well... it was He was a fledgling I'm at the time. I'm surprised he still didn't get a credit. Because then again, it's... It, it's the studio system in gotcha. Hollywood. Not everyone gets a credit at this time. Because now everybody gets a credit. Mm-hmm. If you brought somebody coffee, you get a credit. Yeah, they did not do that in the 50s. Hmm. Oh, well. After the song and dance number, we see Wallace on the phone with that TV producer, which turns out I was at least partially right. <laughs> uh, the TV producer wants to put the whole thing on television and broadcast their charity thing for the general live. The housekeeper was a busybody and listening in on Wallace's call. 
but because she cut in and out doing things, like she yeah. stopped like, oh, turn around and grab something, da 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 So she didn't get to hear the whole call. Um, she only heard part of what was discussed. The TV producer wanted to take advantage of the situation, but Wallace only wants to plug the generals in, of course. Housekeeper Busybody didn't hear that part. She proceeded to be like, bark a bark a bark a bark and shit meets Fan in a very standard way. Mm -hmm. uh, Betty finds out, Jesus Christ, like halfway through this, I was writing Judy instead of Betty and Betty instead of Judy because <laughs> my brain was just like, mmm, Judy's legs. Uh, <laughs> Betty finds out and thinks that Wallace and Davis have an angle to get themselves free publicity and are taking advantage of the general's unfortunate circumstances. Betty and Wallace have a fight and break up, kind of? Were they together? Not no. really. I don't know. Anyways... Betty accuses Wallace of only wanting money, and Wallace is like, oh, why I never? And the two storm out in opposite directions. Because rather than just... Cause that th so the, one of the things, too, is that kind of bugs me is Betty's character is kind of the way I look at her, uh, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. She seems like a woman who is more strong-willed than what would have been considered socially acceptable for the time. She, was, she is more assertive. She's more take-charge. Both of them are, but in different ways. Because I feel like Betty's character was a little out of character by not confronting yes. the situation. Yes. I feel like she would have been like, is it, like, are you trying to take it, like, I feel like, it, but it's one of those things, you have to create the conflict so that they can get back together, rather than just have her be like, are you really just trying to get free publicity for this? You'd be like, what? No, where did you hear that? Like, I told him. Like, yeah. I, I told the guy, this we don't want to make any money off this. This is for the general. Thing is, you could change that part and still have the really awesome scene. Yeah. You could take out that whole conflict and it would still hold up. But anyway... Anyway, it's one just we got a shoehorn so in a stupid. Yeah. There's a Pete Townsend song called "Communication." It hadn't been written yet because Pete Townsend was a wee little lad. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I, I I do I do think that um, conflict like that is it's a cheap cop out to avoid real conflict. It's very lazy because it's like let's have this very surface level conflict that isn't mm -hmm. deep or meaningful in any way just so that we can have a conflict that can be resolved rather than like actually tackling some serious issue or something that needs mm -hmm. to be resolved. They're like yeah. let's manufacture something that we can easily smooth over later. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the reasons this show is lower down on my meh list. Yeah, same. <gasps> Judy Hatch, Judy hatches a plan deciding to get Davis to propose to her cuz if she gets engaged, then maybe Betty will want to too or something, I don't know. Her motive seemed lukewarm at best. Anyways, Davis agrees to get engaged to her, not married, just engaged, as a ruse. But I mean, it's Judy, Davis. Have yeah. you seen those legs? If you're not going to take her, I will. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, no, you can't because you're married to me. Well, yeah, I was. You get me. I get you. You yes. see these legs? You get these legs. Mm, I do get those <laughs> legs. These hairy, manly legs. <laughs> you have nice legs, babe. We're about to get this real awkward real fast. <laughs> That's what mm. our fine listeners come to expect. 
Mm-hmm. Hey, Kay, my eyes are up here. Sorry. <laughs> we cut to a party. Actually, sorry, I do want to ask you real quick. The, uh... Do you... Can you elaborate for me in any way? Because it seemed like Judy's whole mentality was, oh... Betty's always been very protective of me, like a mother hen. You know, she mm-hmm. uses that phrase a couple times in the show, a mother hen. And so her mentality is like, she's always watching out for me, but maybe if I got engaged, she wouldn't need to feel like she had to look out over me because I would have a man to take care of me. Mm-hmm. So she would be free to just worry about herself. And then she could fall in love. And yeah, it's basically the plan, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't miss anything. It's one of those things that it's not well enough established at the beginning. Because if it had been well enough established at the beginning, then that whole ruse would be like, okay, whatever. But even then, the story doesn't need that. It doesn't need that. <laughs> because can... because what is a woman without a man, Kay? What is a woman without a man to take care of him? What? Oh, Kay covered, Kay covered her mouth and is laughing. And I it reminded me of a phrase that I saw. I think it was Gloria Steinman that said it. What? A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. I, yeah, I have seen that before <laughs> as a teacher. That was one of those, uh, it was technically like a feminist mm-hmm. phrase of being like, we don't need no man kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so when you were saying that, that was the first thing that popped into my brain. I was just like, shut up, stop, stop, <laughs> stop, brain. <laughs> Okay, we cut to the party, we cut to a party that night, and it's a classy shindig. Betty and Wallace are pouting in their respective corners, Davis and Judy decide to dance with their respective non-partners, and during the dance try to swap to get Wallace and Betty back together. It doesn't work, and the two go back to their separate corners. Judy and Davis decide to announce their engagement at the party. To the congratulations of everyone. Davis gives the old nudge-nudge wink-wink to Wallace, saying, Hey, I took that plunge and it wasn't so bad. Maybe you should try it. Wallace is like, Eh, that water felt a little cold this morning, but I'll go give it a try. Wallace agrees and tries to patch things up with Betty, but instead of talking about what's bothering her, she storms out. God, this was so stupid. Like, and the thing, too, is I feel like they paint Betty to Mm -hmm. be emotional and unreasonable. Yeah. Because... Uh, when Wallace goes to her, like, she's at a table in the kitchen, there's, there's champagne glasses, and she's holding one, and he picks up one, and he's like, hey, here, here's to, you know, uh, Judy and, and Davis, and, you know, here's to trying to uh, get things between us where they were yesterday, when they yeah. had smooched, kind of thing, and, and he's he's being gentlemanly, yeah, and he's not, and, but she's just like, you lying bastard, you're playing an angle, and mm-hmm. rather than call him on it or say something she just mm-hmm. puts her glass down and storms out yeah it's one of those things where i'm like you know what uh this could have done with another rewrite that's true what's funny is with how meh i felt like this was it makes me terrified to know what the original script right was. i'm like how bad would that movie have been it would have the general probably wouldn't have been a it part been, of it. It, it would have been the other general. It would have been General Jerkface or something like or, that. Or it would have just been about the romantic bullshit conflict and none of the heart with the general and stuff. It would have all just... Ugh. We cut to the morning. 
and the general is dropping Betty off at the train station. She asks the general to give a letter to Judy, and the general expresses his concerns, saying he thinks that she is making a tactical error by leaving. <gasps> Excuse me, sorry. You're fine. Betty tells him it's a private war and to please not get involved. Wallace happens to be at the station as well, doing something clandestine, no doubt, regarding the show, uh, when he sees Betty boarding her train. He tries to stop her, saying that he's sorry, and whatever he did, he didn't mean it. Betty is like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, wish you the best of luck, bye. Mm. Like, uh, I'm, I don't know exactly what Wallace was doing there. I know he was talking to somebody who worked at the train station. He was like, ah, oh, keep this hush-hush. Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure it had to do with, you know, bringing people up. Them. We don't know. We just know it had to do with helping the general. Yeah. But we don't know what he was doing specifically. But then he sees Betty, and Betty is just like, yeah, I wish you the best, okay, bye. And he's mm -hmm. just like, but... And I, I do feel bad for Wallace's character in that, because he's just like, no, 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 please, 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 please we, stay. We can talk. Like, he's like, he's like, uh, what I, did I say? What did I do? He's like, I'm an old goat who's never fallen in love and said he'll never get married, but I kind of like you, and I can see myself being with you. Please don't go. Please don't go, woman who is 20 years younger than me. Oh, God. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Run, Betty! <laughs> Get on the train. Don't look back. He's old enough to be your father. You know, and this whole thing with the sending the letter back... Well, well, I'll I'll tell you after you get to that because I'm sure that you talk about what they say in the letter, and it just pisses me off. It's mm. so stupid. Yeah, just a little bit. <sighs> Judy gets another dance number. Uh, showing off her legs again, mm -hmm. like we all like her to do. Mm -hmm. Judy goes off stage after the dance, and the general's granddaughter gives her Betty's letter. Betty has gone to New York, and she wishes Judy and Davis all the best. Davis reads the letter after Judy, and they're both like, well, shit. Judy and Davis, do you want to interject here? Yes. I know I didn't so cover it very much. The letter tells where she's going to be and when, and I'm like, Betty... If you don't want people to follow you, don't tell them where you're going. Maybe she did. Maybe she did want them to come after her. Then it's a... F mm, mm, then it's mm, extra mm, fucked mm, up when they come mm. after her and she's like, No, yeah, I don't want it. It just... It, uh, uh, just fucking talk, people. Just fucking <laughs> communicate. My God. Continue. Judy and Davis spill the sneaky beans to Wallace, who was like... <laughs> sneaky beans. <laughs> Because they're being sneaky. And they spilled the beans. They spilled their sneaky beans. <laughs> Shit, I didn't think the joke was that funny, but hey, if Kay likes it, I'm good. <laughs> sneaky beans? Kay, 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 tangent. Kay has an image of sneaky beans. I gotta know what it is. What's your image, darling? That is interesting. <laughs> See, and my brain was like, if you make you silent. <laughs> See, that's what I was gonna say. Sneaky beans make you silent but deadly. <laughs> oh, I know I married the right person. <laughs> anyway, Judy and Davis spill the sneaky beans to Wallace, 
who was like, you both suck. You both should be whipped Davis twice, <laughs> which I thought that was bait. It was like, you should be, I don't know if he says whipped or flogged or whatever, but he's like, you uh, should be beaten with a horse whip. Oh, that's right. Beaten with a horse. You, you, should, you should be beaten with a horse whip. And then you, and then you again. Yeah. Uh, Why not a sack of oranges? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is really messed up to know that he was Tie some, tie tennis dad. shoes around your kid. He was an or, abusive dad. Allegedly. Allegedly. I mean, one son said he wasn't. One son said he was, and the others refused to comment. <laughs> that's a bit telling. Yeah, I feel like if others refuse to comment, that's a bit telling. Uh, anyway, anyway, mm. uh, allegations of uh, family abuse aside, Wallace decides to go to New York to try and get Betty to come back with him. Betty has a song at the club and afterwards goes and sits at Wallace's table for a chat. Wallace fills her in on Judy and Davis's sneaky sneak tricky trick plan. <laughs> Betty is like, oh well, I'm still not coming back. Wallace is pulled away by Ed Harrison, the TV dude who he's been talking to. Wallace goes on Ed's show and gives the news that he would like all of those old soldiers from the 151st Division to come up to the General's Lodge for Christmas and give thanks to him for being such a great general. Wallace talks about how no one is profiting from this and Betty is watching and is struck with the Oh, Miss Busybody knows in everyone's business was wrong. And that's when Betty gets her like, I have been an emotional and unreasonable person. This could have been avoided. This whole stupid subplot could have been avoided. Just, ugh. Yeah, you know, it's not, it's not like a real conflict. It's not like a real conflict, like somebody's loved one was murdered, you yeah. know, and it's a plot of revenge to try mm -hmm. and find them. No, it's a... Uh, so you you heard a rumor from someone who didn't hear the whole story, and mm. rather than try and find and out who for is yourself, an establish busybody and don't trust busybodies. God damn it! Yeah. <sighs> uh. Anyway, Wallace's broadcast was a success, and the soldiers of the 151st all head to Vermont. We can tell because the train station is busy, very very busy. We see Wallace giving instructions to his former squad mates as they all get dressed in their uniforms. Jokes are exchanged, and the plan is set in motion. I did forget something that I want to talk about, um, so backtrack a little bit. Uh, the general comes in, uh, and, he's, mm -hmm. and he's with, I can't remember the name of the woman who's the busybody. Emma. Emma. She runs the, uh, the inn. Mm -hmm. She runs the inn. She's just, I guess, what's the proper name of the term? What do they call her? Oh, the housekeeper? Housekeeper. Well, it's funny they call her the housekeeper, but really she's like the manager. Yeah. But women can't be managers in that time. Not in the 50s. <laughs> anyway, yeah, she's the housekeeper, but she's really the manager. Uh, so it's Emma, uh, the general's granddaughter, who I can't remember her name, and the general. And he comes in and he's like, oh, is the TV ready? I'm excited to watch the Ed Harrison show. But they don't want the general to see Wallace go on there and mm -hmm. talk about you know, the, the Christmas thing with the generals in. And so they're trying to get, find a way to get him to, uh, get away from the TV. And the granddaughter's like, Oh, the, the Jeep's battery is dead. Grandpa, can you, he's like, oh, I'll look at it later. I don't want to miss the show. And then Emma, she's like, Oh no, uh, uh, Davis fell down the stairs. He's this hurt. Is so great. He's hurt. Go help him. And Davis is laying at the bottom of the stairs. Ooh, ooh, ow, ow, my leg. Ah, 
and the general goes, oh, what happened? He's like, oh, nothing, sir. I just tripped. Just just a minor compound fracture, you know. <laughs> he tries helping him up and, oh, put, try putting some weight on it. Uh, ah, oh, I'm sure it's just a internal muscle hemorrhage, you know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching this with Kay and I'm like, oh, it's just a touch of cancer, general. It's just... <laughs> It's just a bit of the plague. I'll be fine. He reminds me of Reggie, of your mom's oh puppy. Oh my god, everything is the worst for Reggie. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway. And, uh, the, the general is like, well, how about you come sit with us and watch TV? And then you can just rest your leg. And he's like, oh, I think if I can get back to the bungalow, I'll be fine. I can rest. I don't want to faint in front of the women, you know? Yeah. And the general's like, oh, no, we wouldn't want that. I can't have you faint in front of the women. Can't show any amount of any amount of sensitivity or emotional anguish in front of the women. Mm-hmm. So the general takes uh, Davis out and he's like walking him around. Davis, oh, well, maybe you should walk me around the barn a couple of times. He's like checking his watch when the yeah. general's not looking, trying to <laughs> buy time, you know. And so that part made me laugh because that's mm-hmm. going on in Vermont while Wallace is in New York on Ed Harrison's show. That scene could have been kept in without the stupid ass subplot. <laughs> I'm not going to let that shit go. That's fine. Uh, (laughs) We should call out stupid things when we see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, I call myself out when I do stupid shit. I expect others to do the same. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the general... Okay, so this is after the television thing was a success. The Mm -hmm. people of the 151st Division were watching TV and saw it and were like, yeah, we'll go support the general. And Mm -hmm. they show up and everybody's getting dressed and Wallace is telling them the plan for uh, the general's thing. Meanwhile, the general is chastising Miss Busybody for sending both of his suits to the cleaners. She tells him to just wear his uniform, but he's like, no, under no circumstances, no, 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 no. The granddaughter is able to talk him into it, and the general comes down in his army uniform. He's escorted by his granddaughter into the dining hall, where he receives a surprise he receives a surprise and ruckus applause from his friends and families of the soldiers that he's served with. Wallace starts up the song from the first act, the and it's a song of like, we'll follow him wherever he goes. And yeah. I, not, I'm not going to attempt singing it because I, I can't do it. Uh, and the proud men of the 151st march off the stage and do a double line um, kind of down the... the what's, aisle way. Thank you. The aisle of the stage. Ready for inspection. The general inspects his men, chastising them for being sloppy, undisciplined, and for being the best soldiers he could ever have asked for. The general gives a heartfelt thanks to all of his men, and everyone sits down at their respective tables. Wallace and Davis do a song and dance about wishing that they were back in the army, and who comes on stage but Betty and Judy to perform the song with them. Everything seems to be patched up between Betty and Wallace, but the general is pulled away by a whisper in his ear. It's a Christmas miracle! Snow! Snow! Horrible! Terrible! Awful snow is falling on the ski lodge! I guess it's good for them and the people who ski. You folks can keep it and keep it away from me. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Um, But that scene, that's what Kay and I want to talk about. Like, the best, for us, the best scene in this whole show Mm -hmm. was when the general comes into the dining hall and just sees it packed with people. And everybody's applauding him. And when he turns and he sees all of his former soldiers under his command lined up and just... The actor did a really good job because you can see him get tears in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't cry, but you just see his eyes get a little moist. And he's just so 
touched by all of these guys showing up at his lodge to just congratulate him and thank him. And they have this big-ass cake with these big-ass candles in mm-hmm. it. And it says 10th anniversary of the 151st. 151st. And it's just a really, really genuine, beautiful, nice scene. Mm-hmm. And it was my favorite scene, excluding all of Judy's legs and dancing. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Wallace and Davis joke about going, about getting snowed in and then dress up as beardless Santa, complete with Santa's huge sack (laughs) of toys. Judy sneaks up on Santa's sack and stuffs in a present. (laughs) She stuffs in a present to Wallace from Betty. Wallace drags his huge sack on stage... (laughs) And sings White Christmas <laughs> while giving out presents. <laughs> he sees the present to him and opens it up. It's a knight on a white oh horse. The thing that Betty uh, ridiculed earlier in the movie when she was talking about the absurdity of romance and love and the thing that Wallace referred to himself as when the two of them were getting cozy with one another before Betty left. It has mm-hmm. come full circle. Wallace is Betty's white knight. Mm-hmm. The couples do some smoochy face while the rest of the white Christmas plays in the background and snow falls. The end. Uh, what was funny about that scene with uh, the Christmas presents is... Uh, oh, well, I'm trying to remember. Because, like, it's... It made me laugh how, like... Because... So the scene, it shows uh, Wallace, and I thought maybe his costume wasn't finished because he didn't yeah. have the beard on, but he's talking to some kids, like, kind of going over, okay, no, no, give me a tune. And he's like, ah, oh, that sounds great, sounds great. And, like, da-da, just talking with the kids. He's got the sack over his back, and Judy sneaks up and very carefully puts a present in there, trying not to make mm-hmm. it obvious so he doesn't feel it. And I thought, oh, well, surely he's got a big sack of toys. He's supposed to be Santa. Yeah. Didn't bother to put on a fake-ass beard or anything. He just nope. comes out clean-shaven like, I'm Santa, folks. It's, but it's also me, and I want you to know it's me. It's the cat syndrome. Because you gotta know it's Bing Crosby. <laughs> okay. Can't cover that face up with a beard at all in this. Hey, gotta guy, know it's him. The guy's a decent singer. I wouldn't say he's much of a looker, but... And I, I'm just extra creeped out by the fact that that his love interest is half his age. Mm-hmm. That just that that just weirds me out. I I mm-hmm. got I have no workaround for that. I'm not saying that like that is wrong to be with someone who's younger than you, but I think it's I think it can be creepy. Welcome to Hollywood. Oh my god. So tangent, <laughs> tangent. Uh uh in like the I want to say it was like the early 2000s, Mad TV did a great skit with uh, someone playing uh, Sean Connery, mm-hmm. joking about how Sean Connery, he's, he keeps, like, he's in his like 60s and he's getting paired with these 20-year-olds yes. as his love interest. Oh my gosh. And he makes a joke talking about that, oh, in the next film, we're going to get so-and-so because this woman's a bit too old. She's pushing 30s. Like, I can't be on stage with her. Like, And he's like trying to get up and his leg like snaps and sand pours out of his leg and stuff like that. They're just making fun of how... The way it is in Hollywood is like, these old guys are getting all these young women and mm-hmm. we're supposed to believe that they can be a pair. And it just, yeah. So that, that, that tangent aside. But 
White Christmas was okay. Mm -hmm. It was okay for me. The things I will take away from this show is Judy's legs Mm -hmm. and uh, the general's heartfelt thank you to his men. Yep. And And an earworm. And a fucking earworm. I was just about to say that too. I was just about to say, and Mm -hmm. I'll take away, I'm dreaming of a white Thanksgiving. (laughs) Just like the one we had yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, luckily it's our only Christmas musical this year. That's okay. I like that we're, that we're doing a wide array. That it's mm-hmm. not just nothing but Christmas musicals for the month of December. It would drive me insane. <laughs> more so than I already am. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of a lot of Christmas musicals, so... There's that. Well, there's that mentality of like, if you can attach something terrible to a holiday, you can automatically make it successful by mm-hmm. associating it with that holiday. Yeah. I would like to refer everyone to Grandma Got Ran Over by a fucking reindeer. Or Christmas shoes. Which, we, don't, we don't talk about that. Well, it, so this is... We do not Oh, no, I'm, I'm letting people know about the Christmas challenge. Shoes. I'm just teasing. The Christmas shoes challenge. This is more important than Little Drummer Boy... Or Whamageddon, if you hear Christmas shoes on the radio, Christmas season is over, take down everything, it's done. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that fucking song. Drink all the eggnog, pack it up, it's over. Fuck that song. (laughs) That's why I'm so glad that we've been driving your car and not mine. (laughs) Because mine is usually on the Christmas station and we run the risk of running into that song. Funny side note, when I drive, Kay talks to me so I don't usually have the radio on. When Kay drives, they need music, so mm-hmm. Kay sings. <laughs> yep. Warren has figured it out. <laughs> yep. Okay. So, 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 yeah. Do you have anything you'd like to say about this meh recall of a Christmas show? <laughs> uh, it's... <laughs> oh, I missed the obvious joke. This Christmas meh recall. <laughs> it's, it's white Christmas... It's a classic because some people like it. I yeah. I have trouble with a lot of these 50s shows just because you don't see a lot of people who look like me on there. And no, so it, who, it, who aren't in service roles. Who aren't in service roles or aren't made up to look like me. Yeah. Holiday it, in. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, 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 this show was... And yeah, sorry. sorry. So it, it's just... It's one of those things that it's a show that I never really... I, I liked the music, but I never really had a love for the movie as much as most people do, because I'm like, well, it's another movie with all white people singing, and a lot of it is white people singing jazz or Tin Pan Alley, <laughs> and uh, yeah, let's not forget who uh, who was really great in jazz and... <laughs> Yeah, I will say that whole fucking scene with the minstrel show. Just yep. it wasn't a pr- minstrel show. It was man. I sure wish we could do minstrel shows mm-hmm. again. Those were great when we would dress up in blackface and do inappropriate jokes that made it seem like black people were pulling yeah. the teeth out of dogs and fucking in- shit like instead that. Instead of it, be- it just uh, it's it's yeah. Some of these shows just sort of leave a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. Oh, God. And uh, so I I just 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a Christmas classic. Y'all can like it. I'm meh on it. I don't hate it. It's It doesn't give me as bad of a feeling as Rocky Horror. Yeah. But it gives me more of a, okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. I don't hate it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't hate this show. I don't want it to, like, be tossed into, you know, Mount Doom and yeah. be incinerated. Uh, but at the same time, if I don't see it again, mm-hmm. I won't feel a void in my life. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I mean, I'll, uh, full disclosure, I'll be thinking about Judy's legs for the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's the thing. Is, like, there were some really impressive dance numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the songs, were for me, were just okay. But yeah. I was really more blown away by the really good dance numbers. And if you take out, <laughs> if you take out the stupid parts of the plot, the plot itself is not terrible. Yeah. You get, the you know, these former military guys turned entertainers are successful and through circumstance meet these women and they end up traveling together because they're both parties are entertainers Mm -hmm. and they try to help revitalize this uh inn that's fallen on hard times Mm -hmm. and turns out that it's owned by an old military friend like i'm like on paper i'm like that plot is not terrible that plot is not terrible there is stuff to work with and they did work with it Mm -hmm. but Overall, it's just... The romance subplot was dumb. The Not the romance subplot, the conflict in the romance subplot was dumb. Yeah. And it could have been... It could have been handled in one conversation. And, <laughs> but, Kay, then we wouldn't have the breakup and the getting back together. We gotta have that. Gotta, it's, just, it's, it's Hollywood Formula 101. You you you're a theater. You're not. You're a film major. You should know that. Kay is giving me this look like she's about to spit in my face. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. So, what's our next show, babe? I'm so sorry. Oh God. I'm so sorry. No. What? So December seventh, um, on Nickelodeon. Oh no! There's going to be a musical event. That uh, is for a show that I was surprisingly enjoying listening to. But I know that you are not looking forward to seeing this at all. But hey, it'll be over with and we'll go up to Mama Kay's house to watch it. And uh, Latte can come with and maybe we'll even record it up there with Mama Kay and Sophie. <laughs> it's uh, It's the show that... Kier would have loved to have seen Kier the Bird. Um, we're gonna see the SpongeBob musical. Legally, oh, you know, I have heard from multiple people how surprised they were at how good it was. Yeah. That being said, and I want to make this disclaimer clear. Uh, I don't hate spongebob uh when my sister was a kid watched a lot of spongebob with her spongebob uh was never my personal super favorite thing but there was always plenty of funny stuff Mm -hmm. in it being made into a musical though i'm just i'm just just so i saw enough of it with my 
late parrot here that it actually would translate really well to a musical. <laughs> I will have my expectations readjusted next week. <laughs> yep, so next week we're going to cover SpongeBob and yay. Kay's ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I guess I'll just have to use, until then, I'll just have to use my imagination. (laughs) So thank you guys all for listening. We hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving week if you're here in the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., we hope you had a good week. Um, We just, again, want to thank you. uh, If you want to get in touch with us we've got our twitter tone deaf musical facebook tone deaf musical instagram tone deaf musical our website tone deaf musical.com where Kay has links to all of our social media whatnots as well as our channel in the cast junkie discord server which is a way awesome place which you should all join super awesome uh i love it i check it all the time uh <laughs> we uh also have shirts for sale on uh the Tone Deaf Musical store will hopefully get some more up soon. Right now, it's just our poppin' pussies and pies. <laughs> From our Sweeney Todd episode. Yeah. You can sport a wonderful Meowberry shirt, and mm-hmm. uh, people will ask, is that a pie cat? And you'll say, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Go to Tone Deaf Musical if you're older than a child. <laughs> Do you want to pop a pussy in a pie? Oh, God. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> You say that a lot, and I always tell you a great and many this terrible is true. things. This is true. So, um, yeah, I. do you have anything else you'd like to add, babe? Nope, just want to thank everybody so much for listening, mm-hmm. and we will see you folks next week. Yep, so that'll be it for this week. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone, Tone Deaf. Deaf.